This week and next week, Steve Matson will be bringing the word to us. If you don't know Steve, he was pastor at Journey for 32 years, and it's a great blessing that he's able to be here and share God's word with us. Welcome, Steve. Good morning, Orchard. So Bill gave some introduction. I'd like to give a, a little bit more. I was pastor. I wasn't lead pastor there for all those 32 years. I served about half of that time as the pastor of youth ministries there. Uh, a number of you know who I am. Uh, we have done things cooperatively, Journey Christian Church and Orchard Community Church uh, in the years past. And then even back to youth ministry. I don't know if it's Claudia here today. Claudia knows me back from, uh, yeah, way back in youth ministry days. And so when, when I retired in January, the question is, where are we to go? Where are we to plant ourselves for church? So we decided to take some time to not rush into that. It felt kind of weird being disconnected, not knowing what our family was going to be. But we took some time. We prayed. We sought God. God was so gracious. I told people that I really would like to have some flaming letters on the lawn to make it clear. <laughs> Uh, this is a big deal where we're going to plant ourselves, what faith family we're going to be part of. And I wanted it to be so clear. So I didn't literally get flaming letters on the lawn, but I got something pretty close. God was so gracious to me that in the midst of thinking that I probably was going to come here, God made it abundantly clear that this is the place that he would have me and my wife. My wife, Kyle, uh, is up here. And that this is the place that God would have for us to, to settle in. And so we're in the process of doing that. I have to say that every week this feels a little bit more like home. Uh, there is no substitute. You know, I often talk about quality of time and quantity of time. There's no substitute for quantity of time. Things that are really important you can't do quickly. They just take amount of time to, to execute. And so it's been... And you guys have been so gracious, uh, welcoming us in, uh, greeting us, conversations that we've had. As, as we sat here and people were coming up to give, get communion, I was looking and I said, okay, I know that person, know that person, don't know that person, haven't even met that person. And I thought, there's a lot more of you that I want to get to know and that I want to get to know better. So it, it's good to be here. Uh, the, one of the big reasons I'm here also is Pastor Dave. I hope you appreciate. I sense that you do, uh, but maybe not even enough. I don't know if you can appreciate enough what you have in a man like Dave Day. Uh, I met him very early on in his time here. Uh, reached out to him. We started getting together, and God has knit our hearts together, and he is the real deal. He loves the Lord. He loves you. He's gifted in preaching. His heart is to shepherd you and to see God do great things in this church. And so my wife and I are thrilled to sit under his preaching every week and to know that he is shepherding us, my wife and I, and this congregation so well. And we're enjoying this faith family so much. There's a warmth here, a friendliness that has welcomed us in. We sit in the front. My wife decided that we would sit in the, in the front, and so we're doing that. And one of the advantages to sitting in the, in the front is we have a choir behind us. And uh, I don't know how many of the churches you've, you've visited, but not every church sings. There are churches where the praise band sings, 
And there's a lot of noise from up front, but there's not too much noise from behind. And as we left last Sunday especially, my wife and I were talking about how it was so glorious. The singing from behind us ministered so well to us. So praise God. It's great to see the little kids come up and exit out, that you care for children in that way. There are just so many things that, that we're, we're growing to love about this faith family. So we're still trying to figure out where, where God would have us to plug in here, investigating that. My wife has one idea of a place that, that God could use her uh, in this faith family. I'm still investigating what all that might mean. For two weeks, um, I'm preaching, and it's my honor to do so. Hopefully, it's your blessing as well. You can determine that in about 30, 35 minutes. Um, so let's move along. Psalm 133. You're going to need to have your Bibles open to that psalm because the psalm itself will not be on the screen. Other side verses will. I won't make you try to flip to all the passages. But Psalm 133, you need to have your Bibles open for that. Also, I have an abundance of notes for you. So if you got the notes, you can use those fill in the blank. If you didn't, the ushers, if you just raise your hand and wave frantically, I think they can bring you bring you notes and follow along with that. So let's first of all hear Psalm 133. It says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Father, I pray that you would speak through me. I'm a jar of clay, and this is is precious truth that you've placed before us. So I pray that by your grace, I would be able to communicate clearly the things that I've seen in this passage and the things that you desire for your people to hear. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the, the, this psalm, this is a psalm of ascent. Uh, in Psalms 120 to 134, we find the psalms of ascent, ascending. Uh, Jerusalem is, is high, it's on a hill, and so the people would ascend up for various festivals and gatherings, and they would do that together. They didn't have cell phones to look at, they didn't have things to distract them, they just had one another, and walking up, they're not in cars or chariots even, they're walking up, and so as they did that, they would ascend, and one of the things they would do is they would sing. They would sing these psalms that had been written. And this psalm, this psalm of ascent is about unity. It celebrates unity as a a precious gift, a gracious gift from God. It describes the effects of unity for the people of God. It captures what David felt as the people of Israel went up to Jerusalem for festivals. And it expresses God's response to Christian unity as well. So, this psalm informs us about the great value of unity, and it calls us to protect that unity and to pursue that kind of unity. Now, when we say unity, unity is not just the absence of conflict. It's so much more than that. It is that, but it's much more than that. 
Unity is the presence of something good. It's a conscious commitment to one another. It's coming together as one, bound together. We have the one another's in Scripture. It's the coming together of the people, God, as they dwell as one. It's a conscious commitment to one another, to be bonded together, to be knit together. And it's to be found whenever Christians gather. So we might think it of it as this gathering, and certainly that is one of the major places we would want it to be expressed as we gather together to, to worship on Sunday mornings. But it's more than that. It's the men's Bible study and the women's Bible study. It's the times in the foyer before the service. It's how you interact after we leave the service in the foyer. It's small groups that, that gather together. It's two or three or more Christians that gather for coffee at a shop. It's fellowship meals that take place. It's all of those and more where other Christians, especially of a local church, come together. This psalm is speaking into that. Now, let me lay a warning before us before we get into the meat of this. And the warning is this. Cynicism is an enemy of church unity. Cynicism is an enemy of church unity. As I thought about that, I realized that I've heard various things said in a cynical way if you talk about church unity. Maybe you've heard these as well. I heard this. The church is like Noah's Ark. If it wasn't for the flood on the outside, you couldn't stand the stink on the inside. And everybody giggles, but we should go, ow, that's cynicism, said in a humorous way. But when that creeps in, when that creeps into our thinking and our attitude, we should be warned that that cynical attitude is very dangerous. Or this one, to live above with saints we love, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know, that's a different story. It's the same thing. Cynicism rises up because the calling of unity is so high and failure is so common that we just start to give up. Who can attain to that? So the idea of church unity becomes overwhelming. It becomes a fantasy for us. Understand this. Cynicism is a tool of Satan. It is nothing less than that. It is spiritual warfare that has to be engaged when we talk about church unity. Satan wants to destroy the church. And he wants to destroy its unity because there's power and life and substance in a unified church. So cynicism is a tool of Satan. Cynicism fails to take seriously the call of God and the power of God. Without, without the call of God and without the power of God, it is a fantasy. So cynicism takes, takes, needs to take seriously that God is powerful enough and the call is real. And cynicism is an enemy of unity in the church and must be confronted and rejected. Now, unity is a, in a local church is our calling. 
You might say, well, that's in the Old Testament, that's Israel, that's a nation, that's different. No, Jesus called for us to be a unified people. In, in, his, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus' prayer, the, the Lord prays this, not our Father, not that prayer, but in John 17, Jesus prays for his disciples. And he makes it very clear as he prays for his disciples that right in, are right in front of him that he's, are, he's praying for us too, down through the centuries, all the believers that will come, all the disciples of Jesus Christ. So in John 17, John 17, verses 20 to 23, it says this, I do not ask for these only, that's the disciples right in front of him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the word, world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Three times in those short, short verses, that they would be one, that they would be perfectly one. So the unity that is the focus of this psalm has incredible application for us. So into the meat of it now. First this, unity is good and pleasant. Verse 1, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. First word there, behold. Behold wants to draw our attention. David Speaking, God actually speaking through David, and David as well, wants us to give, not just give a glancing look, not just a casual look at this. Behold says, look at this intently. Gaze on it, focus on it, be enthusiastic about it, be captivated by it, let it instruct you. That, that's behold. And this shows up from time to time in, in Scripture, where there are things that God says, I want you to slow up because you might move it way, past it way too fast. Slow your roll and take a good hard look. Look at some of the passages. Matthew six twenty six to 29. Look or behold the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider, or we could say, behold, the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Jesus is saying, you move past the birds way too fast. They have something to teach you. Let me tell you what God is trying to say to you through these sparrows. Let me tell you what God is trying to tell, tell to you through these lilies. Let, let's consider that. Let's not take a, a, a path that's too quick past them. Or John 1, 35 to 36 says the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he, was, as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. 
You've seen it before. Let, let's behold what we're looking at. Don't just glance at it. Look at it. Or John, 1 John 3, 1. See or behold what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Or Revelation chapter 21, 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So this is a common theme. We tend to move too quickly past things that are of very, very great importance. And what is it that God, through the psalmist, is calling us to behold then? It's this. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. So the first thing is this. It's good. Now, don't think about good. You probably used good this morning in some ways that we we shouldn't understand it here. How was your week? That was good. How's the family? Family's good. Maybe you used it last night. How's your cheeseburger, sir? It's good. You know, how's, how's life these days? It's good. We just kind of glance it off like that. That's not here. Think about good as God uses it in Genesis chapter 1. God creates and it says what? It was good. He creates and it was good. And over and over again. Things were the way that they were meant to be. They were good. And in the redemptive purposes of God... This unity is good. When I say redemptive purposes, God taking things that have fallen apart because of the fall, because of sin, and the church comes together. He says when that church comes together, that's redemption. I'm redeeming what has fallen apart and bringing back to the way it should be. And so God says this is the way it ought to be. This is the way it was meant to be. And God looks on unity and declares what? It is good. But there's more. It's good, but there's more. It's also pleasant. This this brings in the, the emotional element of unity, an emotional pleasantness. This this unity that we're talking about brings pleasure. We are to feel the pleasure of unity. We are to delight in it. I think we had some of that when we couldn't be together for a long time. Do you remember what it was like to come back together and see each other and to hear each other singing and to sit under the word together in our, our chairs? That was a pleasant experience. Unity is to be the pleasant experience of the church. What should rise up in us, it's so good to be together. And it's a preview. Unity is a preview of heaven, the people of God around the throne of God, the ultimate in pleasure. Unity is emotionally enjoyable. Our gatherings together are to be a reminder of how it was meant to be and a foretaste of how it will one day totally be. And it should be immensely pleasurable. Now, in order to help us understand this pleasantness, David gives us two illustrations, two declarations, and they first start, they both start with the same three words. It is like. And these are to inform what good and pleasant are like. So, first, unity is like precious oil. 
Verse 2, it is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. So it's this oil. This is anointing oil. This is sacred oil. And it would set the high priest apart. And here Aaron is the one that initially was set apart. So here are God's instructions about this oil. And I'm going to read just the first set of verses there, Exodus 30, 23 to 25. Here are the instructions about producing this special oil. Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil, and you shall make these a sacred anointing oil blended by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil." Here's what we find it is like. Unity is like being immersed in a wonderful fragrance. Here again, the the words from Exodus 30. Finest spices, sweet-smelling cinnamon, aromatic cane, and then oil blended by the perfumer. Now, that may not sound really great to you. You might say, I really don't want to have oil. I don't care what it smells like, pour it on my head and running down, you know, I'd be yelling, give me a paper towel or something. And then for it to get on my clothes, that maybe that doesn't resonate with you. There's There's a cultural gap there maybe that we have to fill in. So transfer this experience to a refreshing shower. You're dirty, you're sweaty, you've been working hard. And you you take this shower and consider the refreshing nature of the water rolling down on your head, over your face, onto your body, washing away the dirt, and just the refreshing nature of the water itself. But not just the water, but consider everything you use on your body these days, it has an aroma to it. I was looking at some of the things in my shower today. And so I guess I smell really good today because my shampoo has, a, has an aroma. The soap that I use, the body wash, I don't use a lotion just in case. But if you do use some kind of a lotion, that has an aroma as well. It's that kind of image of the, this aroma just enveloping you coming down and the pleasantness of that. And the New Testament gives us some descriptions of this wonderful aroma. So in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's an aroma. When you walk into a church that is unified, those are the kind of things that fill your senses. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, a bond of peace. And then Ephesians chapter... Ephesians chapter 4, verses 30 to 32, later on. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away along with all malice. So that's, that's washing off the dirt. 
get rid of all the stuff that, that would inhibit that unity. You have to get rid of that, wash it down the drain, and then it goes on. And here comes the fragrance. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You see, unity is like being immersed in that wonderful fragrance. But it's also this. Unity is like dew. The first half of verse 3. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. So unity is, is like this, this dew. The dew that would settle on Mount Hermon. It's the highest mountain in Syria, about 120 miles away from Jerusalem. This mountain was known for its, its moisture. Two-thirds uh, of the year, it was covered with snow. It had 60 inches of precipitation annually. It was the main source of supply for the Jordan River. So, so the dew and, and that would settle on this mountain would roll down and come all the way down to the Jordan River and down to Jerusalem. So the dew was necessary for a fruitful harvest. It was necessary for there to be fruitfulness. The dew on Mount Hermon provided life-giving effects. So this is what we learn about Mount Hermon and the dew. That unity produces flourishing. A lack of unity dries up the work of God in a local church. Division in a local church saps energy from that church. Energy that is to be used for, for caring for one another and reaching out as well. It's no little thing, this issue of unity. It just dries up the work of God in a church. It kills the soul of a church. The presence of unity produces flourishing, on the other hand. It produces flourishing among the people of God. The presence of unity nourishes the people of God, breathing life and strength and hope into them. And some of you know exactly what I mean. You come as an individual into that Bible study or into a worship service or into that, that coffee with another believer and you desperately need life poured into you. And within that unity, life is given. Strength and hope is given. The presence of, of unity nourishes the work of God in a church. So the question becomes, if we're to pursue that kind of unity, if it's good and pleasant, if it's, if it's like, like do, then how do we create that kind? How is that kind of unity created? What can sustain that? Well, unity has a gospel foundation. Unity comes from a unifying factor that overwhelms all other differences. Christian unity, hear me, Christian unity is not built upon age or race or economic status 
or musical preferences or political affiliations or positions. Christian unity is not built around any kind of homogeneous groups. These are way too shallow, way too flimsy to sustain the unity that God calls us to. When we build on those kind of homogeneous groupings, we actually steal the strength that we are to have, the unity that we are to have as the people of God. Actually, unity and diversity is a testimony to the gospel itself. Our unity is to be built upon the strength of the gospel. And I would say this, the unity, the the gospel overwhelms, the gospel overwhelms other differences. So, our unity, our unity is around what? First of all, our unity is around what we believe. This is theology. It's around what we believe. We believe that God has revealed himself to us through his word, the Bible. We believe that there is one God in three persons. We believe that Jesus died on the cross in our place for our sin. And that three days later, he rose. We believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. We believe that Jesus is returning and we will spend eternity with God with one another. We build our unity around affirming gospel truth, taking hold of gospel truth that are foundational then to our lives. These anchor us. We say together, this is what we believe. And we look from side to say, me too. That forms unity in a body. You sang it this morning. So many of the songs we sang this morning around affirming things that this is what we believe. This is what we believe. And as we sang it, I thought, that is so right and good. Sometimes we sing about our emotions. And there's a place to sing about our emotions. Because the Christian faith is full of our emotions. We aren't just Christians in our heads. We're Christians from our hearts. But we also have to be not just Christians from our hearts, but Christians in our heads. So we need to affirm those things in our our singing and in our preaching and in our conversations with each other. This is what we believe. Those hold the people of God together. It's part of the gospel foundation for unity. And our unity also then is around who we are. Notice verse 1, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. We are brothers and sisters. We have been adopted into a family. Brothers and sisters with God as our Father. This defines us. Now I, I love my biological family. But not all of them are believers. And I feel the difference. And probably for many of you, it's like this. I feel more at home and able to be myself and engage in life with my brothers and sisters in Christ than I do with my non-Christian family. And Jesus talks about that. He talks about it can even become contentious at times with them. Does it need to be? It's not for me. 
But there should be something about brothers and sisters in Christ together that, that unifies us. This defines us. This marks us deeper than any other character trait. We are brothers and sisters of Christ in Christ with God as our Father. So true Christianity is formed around a deep awareness of and gladness for being brothers and sisters in Christ. So we build our unity on who we are, brothers and sisters in Christ. And then this, we build our unity around this gospel truth, who we want to be, who we want to be. We want to be. As individuals and corporately, we want to be people who know God and love God deeply and more so every day. We long to be people who are crucifying sin and are pursuing holiness. We want to be people who are sharing the good news with others. So we strive together. We support one another. We encourage one another. We cry with one another. We rejoice with one another, all in the pursuit of following Jesus. So we build our unity on who we want to be. We don't walk this life alone. We gather around us, brothers and sisters, and share, this is where I fall short. This is who I long to be. This is what God is calling me to. And it creates a unity among the people of God when they share those things. And pursue those things. Now, unity results then in God's blessing. Verse 3, the second half. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing. Life forevermore. Unity positions the people of God to be blessed by God. It positions us to be blessed by God. So there... In the context, that would be Zion, where God dwells and where the people of God go to meet with God. That's what's going on as they ascend. And there, by extension, also is where God's people gather in gospel-focused unity. Again, the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. There. So God responds to unity. Blessing life forevermore. God gives life to individuals there, and God gives life to churches there. So let's consider some of the blessings of unity. First one would be this, evidence to us of our own salvation. So Philippians 1, 27 and 28. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. There's unity. And not frightened at anything by your opponents. This, that, that in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, those outside the faith, but of your, you believers, of your salvation and that from God. So, so listen, you're, you're longing for unity. You're working that out. Your pursuit of unity is a clear sign to you of the reality of the authenticity of your own salvation. When that, when that desire and that, that effort comes out of you, says, no, we need to be unified, we need to, I need to pursue that and work on that, when that rises up in you, it's an indication that you are a Christ follower. 
Listen, it's a scary thing to be a divisive person within a local church. It's a scary thing to be a divisive person within a local church. It's an indication that you might not even be a believer at all. But a heart for unity within a church, the pursuit of unity within a local church, is an indication to you of your faith in Christ being authentic. So that's the first blessing. Another second blessing is this. It's a witness. It's a witness to the world. John 13, 35. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 17, 23. I read this earlier. This is within Jesus' prayer, remember? And you heard this. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one why? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Our unity is, is, a, is a message. It's a witness to the world. Divisiveness in a church. Listen, divisiveness in a church is a witness against the gospel to a watching world. That's the flip side of it. When there's division within a local church, it works against the witness of that local church. It's not unreasonable for people outside of the church to dismiss the claims of the church if the people who make those claims are a divisive people. Why should I listen to you? You can't even work out among yourselves what you're preaching to me. But unity among the members of a local church is a powerful witness to outsiders, both of the truth of the gospel and of the power of the gospel. And then the third blessing is this. And we've already touched it, but I'll touch it one more time. Just a deep, a deep pleasantness. Divisiveness in a church is painful and repulsive and life-draining, but unity within a faith family is pleasant and life-giving like a refreshing shower. Matthew Henry in his commentary said this, Those that live in peace, love and peace shall have the God of love and peace with them now, and they shall be with him shortly, with him forever, in the world of endless love and peace. So let's make some application here. What, what, what do we do with this? Well, there could be a lot of points. I'm just going to make three. Three points of application. First one is this, repent of participating in division. Reject any negative leanings in division. And I put the word any in there because sometimes we wait till it gets to such a point that we go, oh, I shouldn't be doing that. We should nip it off at the very beginning. That first word, that first attitude, that first relationship that leans in that direction Nip it in the bud then. So repent of participating in division. It's good for us to pause and to examine ourselves in areas like this from time and time to time. Don't be quick to say, I'm not divisive. It's good to take a little time to say, Lord, show me. Is there any wicked way in me in, in this? Is there any way that I tend to say things or have an attitude about something? That would be divisive. Show it to me. 
Consider if there are any areas that you are participating in or words that you're saying that might bring division to a church. And then if you find that, repent. Repent to God. If it's internal, then it stops right there. If it's just been your thoughts and your attitude, then you repent to God. But if it's leaked out in a word to somebody or somebody's picked up on something else, then you need to stop and not just repent to God, repent to others that you have troubled. Second application, protect unity. So resist getting drawn in to divisive conversations and actions. Be on guard. Look out for those who want to draw you in to divisive talk and behavior. In fact, run away from from it. So resist it. That's one way to protect unity. But then also this, counsel and confront others who are causing or moving towards division. Gently come up to your brother or sister Christ who's talking or acting that way and say, Let, can, we, can we have a conversation? This is not good. We need to confront and then encourage people away from division and towards unity. So protect unity. And the third one is this, pursue unity. Engage others, a wide variety of others. People who are not like you, we naturally tend to gravitate towards people, our own age, our own music, our own stage of life, whatever is our own political ideas, and we gather in those little huddles. Let the gospel expand that. Engage others, a wide variety of others, and promote unity in whatever way you can. With words, with a listening ear, with acts of service, with actions, whatever would do that, pursue unity. Promote a positive leaning towards being unified. So just listen to the psalm then one more time. Behold, How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil in the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore.